Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, rather Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. You thought we skipped some. We're in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're unfamiliar with how to use the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know how to find the book of Galatians. And then the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. We're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning in Galatians 5, but we're going to find some different satellites and some different passages to round this out. So just know, if you stay in Galatians, you're good, you're there. You can pencil those other things down and find them out later uh, if you're so inclined. I was thinking uh, this week, my parents came to visit me, and every time my parents come to town, uh, my mom makes the same breakfast. Now, this week she didn't do that because, well, she didn't do that. We don't need to go there. <clears throat> she can atone for that later. And so she didn't, she didn't make this breakfast. That is the breakfast that she's been making uh, the majority of my life. And so it's, it's insanely heavy. It's the kind of breakfast that strikes a man down in his 30s from heart failure. Whew, man, that was, that was tough for a second there. And so it is, y'all, it's biscuits and gravy. It's grits, it's bacon, it's sausage, it's fat on the side with butter. You know what I'm saying? It is a good, hearty, heavy egg breakfast. I mean, like, it is, it is a gut bomb. It is the breakfast I grew up having. And I can remember as a kid sitting there and watching my dad eat biscuits and gravy. And, and, and in case you're just kind of this neophyte, you're not really sure how to engage in this, there is a method to how you're to do this, at least in our home. I don't know how you get down and so you, you take the biscuit, uh, you set them on the plate, you cut them in half, you, you do over, you always start with at least two, which now makes four, which is the foundation to now receive the gravy, right? And so you've got four because you just have to, and so you, you heap the gravy on it, and then in what little space is left on your plate, you put some grits with butter and salt, and then you put some eggs, you know, just to kind of add some color, and then you add bacon as kind of this Maginot line through here, and then you have these little satellites of sausage patties. Y'all, it's a happy plate. <clears throat> now, being from Louisiana, to add on top of that, you add a little flair, and so there's always a bottle of Tabasco that goes with this meal, and you, you take some Tabasco and you put it on top of the biscuits and gravy. Now, as a kid, your plate is set, right? And so I remember seeing this and eating and getting to the end of round one and being full. Like being full, but still having an appetite. I don't know if you know that feeling. And so still having an appetite of what I began to associate as a kid that the end of the meal felt a lot like needing to vomit. <clears throat> Not because something had gone wrong with the meal, but because something had gone wrong with my capacity to continue to take in this meal. Now, as I got older, people began to tell me something along the lines of, you know, it's not a race, and nobody gets a, a, an award for eating more than anybody else. And I thought, you guys are crazy. Why would we leave biscuits and gravy on the table when we have not yet thrown up? But I recognize that's not a great way to go through life. That's not a great way to approach meals. That is a great way to assume the, uh, the, the, the posture and the size of most Southern Baptist pastors, but not a good approach if I want to live into my 50s or 60s. Now, the Apostle Paul takes a look in some sense in, in, in an approach for how we go through and how we live life. 
And we recognize that over the course of, of living your life, there are things that you're going to have a temptation and a desire to do, but you're going to have this little thing that plays in your heart and your mind and your soul that says, don't do this, don't go this way. And let's call that, that, that allurement to head in this direction, let's call that the flesh. And that thing which is pulling us back, which is saying, don't do this, don't go this way, let's call that the Holy Spirit, and this is the conviction of God at work in our lives. So within the simple explanation of the deliciousness of my mom's breakfast, the Holy Spirit was saying, you don't really need five more biscuits. And the flesh was saying, but they're still there, big boy. <laughs> right? And, I, and, 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 and as a kid, I, I went the way of the flesh over and over and over again to the very end of the basket of biscuits. But the Apostle Paul does not want to see us live our lives this way. He doesn't want to see us drawn and pulled and, and destroyed as we live our lives unto un the submission of the flesh. He would rather see us live lives fully in the freedom of the Spirit. And so he gives us the means, the direction, and the instruction for how to accomplish that today. How to live lives as freed people under the power of God's Holy Spirit. Read with me in Galatians 5, 16 through 21. Paul addresses it simply, and he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, they're plain, they're easy to see. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then summarily he says, in things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into this place recognizing that even as we sit here and listen, even as we study, that there is an invisible battle waging for our affections. That the agents of the enemy long to see us entrapped to our flesh, living in our shame, feeding on our base appetite. And God, and, and your spirit is longing to pull us from this trap, longing to release us from this snare so that we might experience what it is to live lives in freedom. Not that we would live sinless lives, but we live our lives under the sinlessness of Jesus who came giving himself as a sacrifice for us so that we might have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. And so, God, I pray that as you find us in this place, that you would interrupt us, man, woman, and child, in the waywardness of our flesh, that you would redeem us in the power of your spirit, that you would release us from the sting and from the burden of shame, that we would find ourselves freely confessing sin and being welcomed once again into the embrace of your spirit. God, that's what I want for every man, woman, and child in this place, in this hearing today, that they would finally, fully experience freedom. Help us to lay down our burdens. Help us to lay down our grief. Help us to give up, to yield over the sin, this desire of the flesh that solely desires to lead us into slavery. There is no true freedom, joy, or relief 
and the desire of the flesh. But God, in you is a fountain of mercy. You lavish grace upon us, and you welcome us home once again. So God, that's what we long for, that's what we desire. Would you help us to experience that in a new and real way this morning? We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want you to look at verses 16 and 18. Essentially what Paul does is he gives us kind of the, the active and the passive methodology for abstaining from sin. The active and the passive methodology for abstaining from sin. He begins, and really simply, Paul uses a picture, he uses this metaphor that he uses over and over again, this idea of walking. This idea of, of, of behaving, of living in a certain way. So what does he say? Simply he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now this idea of, of walking requires a couple of things from us. One, it requires resolve. It requires resolve. We're, we're going to encounter adversity. We're going to encounter difficulties. Simply, we're going to encounter things that we want to do, things we want to be engaged in. And what the Apostle Paul tells us in this is we need to find ourselves continually given over, desirous, and moving in the direction of walking in the Spirit. Now, notice he doesn't say here, the Spirit's going to walk for you. Notice he doesn't say here that, that there's nothing on you. You just kind of go along and you just float along and God's going to wave his magic, magic wand and everything's going to be fine for you. What he calls us to in here is a radical investment of our lives. He's calling us to submitting ourselves to him and yielding ourselves over and over and over again to some things that are going to be unpleasant. And away from things that will bring oftentimes an immediate benefit, an immediate sense of I like this, I delight in this, I'm enjoying this. And what he calls us to is a walking over and over again by the equipping, the empowerment of the Spirit. He's not saying do this alone. He's not saying do this in your own might or your own strength. He's saying you walk by the Spirit. There's a resolve to it. There's the idea that when I wake up in the morning and I'm facing those things that are on my calendar and the list of things I have today and the list of the carryover, the things I didn't do yesterday, as I approach that and enter into that, my prayer before God is, God, would you sustain me in the midst of the difficulties coming up? God, would you sustain me in the midst of all the things that are set before me? Because if I try and do this in my own strength, I'm going to fall. If I try and do this in my own strength, I'm going to trip, I'm going to mess up. It's going to be a disaster. And so we only ever walk by the power of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you just as much as today as I did yesterday. And over the course of the Christian's life, they are not growing in independence of the Spirit. They're growing in an acute awareness of the necessity of dependence upon Him. Do you see the difference? You start working out, you get stronger, you can lift heavier weights, right? Within the Christian's life, we don't grow in independence where we're able to do greater spiritual feats. We grow to be less, less, uh, less enamored by our flesh. We grow to be lessened in our understanding that I can do this on my own and increasing in my awareness that I need an ever-increasing measure of the Spirit. So over the course of my life, there's less of my flesh and more of the Spirit. There's less of my flesh and more of the Spirit. He is increasing in measure in what I am able to accomplish by His power. So we need resolve. We need resolve, but we also need a sense of awareness. P. 
Peter writes it simply this way in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Some of us have come into this understanding that I'm really okay on my own. Like I have made it to a place of self-sufficiency. I've made it to a place where I'm not tripping up over the same sins. And what does that engender in us? What does that create in us? Pride. It creates in us a sense of blind pride where I say, I'm not really struggling in these same ways. I don't, I don't view this information on the internet anymore. I, I, I'm not drinking in excess anymore. I'm not doing these things. I'm not a liar anymore. I'm not an awful person anymore. I'm really doing pretty well. And all the while, your enemy, Satan, is looking at you saying, yes, you are. You're doing such a good job on your own. You really don't need the spirit because you're such a good man. You're such a good woman. And it leads you into this sense of this elevated sense of self-importance and self-reliance. This enemy wants to see you destroyed. If you're married, he wants to see your marriage destroyed. If you have kids, he wants to see you be so harsh and demeaning on them that they rebel against you. If you're a child, if, you're, if you live at home with your parents, he wants you to see only faults and only failures in your, in your parents so you don't submit to them and honor the Lord. He wants to take every relationship you have, every circumstance you find yourself in, and lead you to see the negativity in it and how you are better or how you're so tragically flawed that nobody really wants you in your life. We have to have a resolve that we stay in there. And we have to have an awareness that there is a real enemy and he wants to tear you down and he wants to use good people in your life to destroy you and he wants to use you and your words and your actions to do the same thing to others. And what does that do? It doesn't leave us in this sense of, oh, I just don't know what to do. It leads us in this sense, in this dependence where we come back to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I know today I'm gonna face the enemy I know that yesterday he brought these things across my path. He brought these ideas to my mind. He brought this delusion to my spirit. He brought this tension in my relationship. Today, Holy Spirit, would you help me to walk in your power as I encounter that? Today, Holy Spirit, would you help me to be more dependent upon you? And what is the promise in this? He says, if you will do this, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, you look at this and say, hogwash. You look at this and you say, my experience has taught me that this is not at all true. I find myself continually engaging in the desire of the flesh. I find myself constantly moving in this way. I will tell you that when you find yourself walking in sin, that there is some indication. There is some indication that you have been living and you purposed this or you found yourself doing this by accident. You have been living in the power of your own flesh. No, it may look very religious. You've been attending church regularly. You've been giving sacrificially. You've been very kind, and you've not yet lost your temper. You're even kind to internet trolls. And y'all, that's a different level of sanctification that Jesus himself would struggle in every way. It's a good thing the internet wasn't around when he was there. And so you look at it, and you think, I I just don't see it. I, 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 I just don't see it. But I tell you, in every couple I've ever counseled, in every man I've ever visited with that struggles with pornography, that struggles with lust, in every 
person I've ever visited with who's had some issue of, of sin in their life or some struggle and they're weighing through some decision, at some point in their life, they quit investing themselves in the things of God. They saw success and they coasted. They saw ease and they took it easy. They had some significant obstacle that they overcame and they said, it's fine. What we need as a people of God is continual dependence upon the spirit of God. We will never arrive. We will never arrive this side of glory. There is always this tension and always this pull. He has created us. God has created us to need him. And that's not a bad thing. That is a good, gracious, and glorious thing. Amen? Y'all, we need to walk by the power of the Spirit. Listen to why Paul says why. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to one another. Simply, he says, the, the flesh and the spirit, they don't exist within the same area. They, they're not agreeing, hey, let's, we can work together. We can do something really well here. It doesn't work that way. He says, and they're opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say, for example, you are in the midst of submitting to some sin. You, you recognize that, that you are a habitual liar. You're a, you're a habitual liar. You've never met a story you didn't want to add color to. And it's not just that. You find yourself when somebody says, hey, did you do this? Even though you have not, you've not accomplished the things your boss said before, you find yourself saying yes because you're too embarrassed to say no. No, I didn't do that. As a matter of fact, I got distracted. I surfed the web for five or six hours. I went on monster.com and wondered if I could make more money elsewhere. And then I realized I wasn't doing this job very well. And around about that time, you walked into my office. Right? That's the level of honesty we probably shouldn't seek to engage in if we want to keep that job. But you're a liar. You're an adulterer in your heart. You struggle with pride. You struggle with covetousness. You see the things other people have and you want them to be yours. You are lazy, whatever it is, whatever it is. Now, somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit comes to you and reveals to you, you're a liar. You are hateful. You are racist, you're a bigot, you're a nationalist, whatever, whatever you're seeing. And the Holy Spirit brings this to your attention. And in that moment, what we see played out within our hearts and in our lives is this war breaks out between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit comes to us and says, you need to confess it to the Lord, you need to turn away from it, and you need to make restitution. In the case of lying, if I've been spreading lies and so I say, did you know, did you know that Philip actually started Disney World? And you say, no, I didn't know that. Actually, yes, he is a secret, y'all, billionaire. But he's the selfish, stingiest secret billionaire you've ever met. And so I go over to Christie. I said, did you know that Philip is a secret billionaire? And then I go and, and, and I go to Levi. Levi, did you know that he's a secret billionaire? And I go, Jonathan, did you know that he's a secret billionaire? And then I go over here and I'm like, Valerie, did you know that he's a secret billionaire? And she goes, no, he's not. And you're a liar. So I go to Karen and I say, Karen, did, not really. 
what do I do? In that moment, through her urging, and through the Holy Spirit's work in my heart, I've come to this understanding that the things I've been saying about him aren't true. He's not a secret billionaire that I'm aware of. Did you? Are you? No. You gotta clear that up. That could be really helpful. We have some debt to pay down. So the Spirit leads me in paths of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, listen to what he says. He says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So in this moment, I want to walk in peace and harmony with the Lord. And so I confess to the Lord, I have been lying. I have been saying things that aren't true. I go to Philip and I say, I don't know where this idea came from, but I became convinced that you had a hand in starting Disney World and that you're a secret billionaire. And he just almost smiles, which is a significant accomplishment. And, and, and I say, brother, I am sorry for sharing these <laughs> things about you. I should have picked a different example. Things about you <laughs> that aren't true. Well, it doesn't stop there. You see, because my sin has had a cascading effect, so I've got to go to Christy, I've got to go to Levi, I've got to go to Jonathan, I've got to go to Valerie, and say, He's, I've been sharing these things about this brother that aren't true. And that's what the Spirit wants to lead me to do. And then to quit being a liar. But this is what the flesh wants me to do. In a very amazing slide of hand, the flesh wants me to say, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. People know you're crazy. The truth's going to come out, just don't worry about it. This is going to really wreck your relationship with Phil. It's going to wreck how people feel about you. It's going to lead me to take Scripture and twist it and contort it and change it to where I find validation through this. And when we do this, the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. The flesh doesn't want me to follow the conviction of the spirit. And the Spirit knows that I can't have life living in the mandates of the flesh. Probably about eight years ago, a friend of mine, a fellow pastor, he was in this pastor's group uh, with us. We got together every summer. And so he wrote all of us in the group, and he said, I've got I've to confess something to y'all. He said, 13 years ago, I had an affair. I was working on staff uh, with, with this other person. We're the only two people on staff. We slept together, and, and I had this short affair, and I confessed my sin before the Lord, and, and she went on to sleep with another staff member. They actually left their spouses together and left the church. But this whole time, I've been living with this understanding that it was handled, that it was addressed. We broke off the relationship, but I never told my wife. She never told her husband. And ultimately what I did was I gave in to the flesh. In the moment when I had the relationship and I gave in to the flesh, in the moment when I believed shame was more important than righteousness. The flesh is always going to lead you to be satisfied, satisfied and appeased. It's always going to lead you into this sense of don't worry about it, it's going to be okay. The Spirit wants to lead you to righteousness. The Spirit wants to lead you back to the heart of the Lord. And there is this lie that shame tells us. Shame essentially says, you are mistake. But conviction says, 
you made a mistake. One is a declaration of who you are. The other one is an admission of what you have done. God calls us to walk in the Spirit. And if we do that, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Look at how Paul goes on. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now this idea of being under the law, Paul has addressed for us over and over again in the book of Galatians. In verse 4 of chapter 5, he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So to be justified by the law, to live under the law, sees us being completely removed and devoid of any benefit of Jesus in the sacrifice that has come to us through the shedding of his blood. But if we are led by the Spirit, we stay in step with Jesus. When Valerie and I went to uh, Disney World back this fall, it was amazing the number of parents that had outfitted their kids with leashes, right? Seeing the way some of their kids walked, I think they would have done better with a choke collar. But nevertheless, they had these leashes that attached to little backpacks on the back of their kids, and they're doing this number. No, I don't want to go to the babes. And t- no, no, I don't want to go to this ride. No, I don't, and it's not a wonderful small world after all. And that's the, the picture that, that in some sense that I, I, I think that kind of comes into our mind when we have this idea of being led, is of being dragged, of being dragged along, of being cajoled, of being forced to go into some direction. But when Paul writes and says, be led by the Spirit, what does he picture there? He pictures us gingerly sticking out our hand, opening our hand to the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, would you take my hand and would you lead me? I'm not dragging you where I want to go. You're not dragging me, pulling me in these directions. It is me willingly of my own volition in humility surrendering myself and my will to him. It's breaking myself to my flesh. There's a humility in that. Do you see that? This idea that that comes into our heads that says, I actually don't know best. I actually don't know how to navigate these relationships uh, best. I actually don't know what is best for me. I actually don't know what my future holds for me. I actually have a terrific amount of uncertainty and an overwhelming amount of grief and sin and sorrow in my life. So the Holy Spirit, I extend my hand, would you lead me? Do you see the humility in that? Do you see the hubris that says anything else? No, we are limited people. I don't know the future. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know what next week will bring. I keep planning outings thinking this cold front is coming through and Texas is lying to me. (laughs) I love you, Texas. I'm sorry. Graciously extend our hand in humility. Y'all, this requires that we trust God's character. I trust that in humility I extend my hand to him and say, I don't know what the future holds. What the future holds, I don't know where you're going to take me, but I trust your character. Your word reveals over and over again that you are good and that you do good. I have seen the examples of how you have taken my family members. I've seen the example in my own life of how you have taken me through hard things that I know that even though the enemy wages against me, still your goodness prevails. In humility, I extend my hand and say, I don't know. In trust, I extend my hand. Allow him to take me, even in the darkest of night. If you were led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, Paul tells us something next, which should be 
patently obvious to us. He says, the deeds of the flesh are evident. In essence, they are seen. If you're engaging in in the desire of the flesh, if you're engaging in following the deeds of the flesh, the people around you, they're aware of these things. This thin veneer of religiosity that you put on top of your sinfulness, people see through the mirage. And even if you have led yourself to an awareness, you have duped yourself into believing that nobody sees, nobody knows, nobody's aware, your heavenly Father sees from heaven, and he is acutely aware. There is no hiding There is no obscuring. He sees your sin. Paul says the deeds of the flesh are patently obvious. They're evident. Now, there are 15 listed here. And this list really breaks down into kind of four separate categories. We have a sexual category. We have a religious category. We have an interpersonal category. And then we just have straight out pure paganism. So look at the first. He lists three that kind of fit in this sexual category. He says it is sexual immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And so we recognize this of being kind of these these egregious deeds of the flesh, these desires that are inside of us. Now God has created a conduit for sexual expression, and that within the confines of marriage. But we find ourselves in our culture sexualizes everything. And then we would say even even within the Christian church, even even within uh, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, what we'll find is men and women giving themselves, yielding themselves over again and again to sexual expression outside the bounds that God has deemed appropriate. Think about it in terms of the, the vast use of pornography. The industry of pornography that wrecks lives, that leads men and women to believe lies that are not true about themselves and about the people, to, the people with whom they're seeking to be gratified. Ray Ortland, Ray Ortland wrote a book recently called The Death of Porn. And this is what he says. He says, if you look at porn, be honest enough to say to God, today I entertain myself with sexual exploitation, or today I, I joined in the abuse of a woman. Or today I watched her degradation for my pleasure. Or today I took my stand against you with Satan. It's not not an innocent path to follow. It's not a victimless pursuit. It sees you align your heart with the leagues of darkness. And to say my desires are more important than righteousness. My desires, my base impulses are more important than this individual who is made in the image and the likeness of God. And this is just one of the many different layers of sexual sin. This is a serious thing before the heart of God. It is a devastating thing before the heart of God. One of the terrific sadnesses that I see over and over and over again are parents who yield over to their children cell phones with no instruction. It's like throwing them in a Corvette and saying, look, I took out the seatbelt and all the little sensors. You just go nuts and have a good time. I'll meet you at your funeral. You've outfitted your child with the access of developing and feeding an appetite they can't control. And it is largely your fault. 
we have to be aware of what is out there. You have to be aware of addressing and having hard conversations with your children about sexuality, about pornography, about their own bodies, about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate to say to a person, to have said to them. Like, we don't live in Mayberry. And it turns out that Mayberry actually had a pretty seedy underbelly. I don't know that Barney was involved, but I'm pretty sure he knew about it. They're evident, these issues of sexuality. In religion, he says, idolatry and sorcery, setting my heart, setting my desire, setting my identity on something else, be it kids' sports, be it my job, be it money, be it something else, thinking there's something I can do or say that's going to make things be the way that I want to. This only works for field goals in college football. Look at what he goes on to say. When talking about interpersonal issues, he says it's enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. We see this over and over and over again spill out within the church. See it spill out within the church. And what do we say? Some people are just hard to get along with. You know, Paul writes and he says, These are this, this is the desire of the flesh. The desire of the flesh should have no place in the house of God. Amen. Oh, come on now. Say it like you believe it. The desires of the flesh should have no part in the house of God. Amen. Hey, the sadness is we see enmity, hatred with a fancy word break out within the house of God. We see strife, man against woman, woman against woman, man against man, families against families, jealousy. I want what they have, fits of anger. I can't get what they have. I can't change their way. So I'm going to visit my wrath upon them, either in my words or my fists, rivalries. Don't be friends with them. Don't be friends with them. We need to be in this together, creating tension within the middle of this, which creates the idea of dissensions and divisions. We break up on ideologies, politics, oh, COVIDs and masks. We break up on these ideas or the idea of divisions. Let us be over here and let us have them over there. We're a part of the body. We're just separate appendages. (laughs) I don't think so. It doesn't work that way. This could be a different sermon really fast. Envy, simply I resent the things they have. I resent the blessings of God visited in their life. And oftentimes, it's not the blessings of God. What you resent is them having money, them having stuff, and you not having it. All these things are the desire of the flesh. The enemy wants us to see these things over and over and over again. But he wants us most readily to see them in the lives of others and not ourselves. Because that's so much more appealing and that feels so much more, oh, what is the word? Holy? If I can see the, the mistakes and the sins in somebody else's life, that just feels incredibly gratifying. Oh, yeah, man, they are envious. Woo! They're an angry person. Yeah, and you're a gossip. He finishes it with a list of just plain paganists in the first century or the 21st century or any neighborhood you might live in, drunkenness and orgies, giving yourself over to base appetites. Some of us aren't drunk on alcohol, we're drunk on food, we're drunk on power, we're drunk on our own opinions of ourselves and wanting other people to come into them. Now look, you might have made it through this list and you're like, he did not nail me to the wall. So right, Paul does though. Look at what he ends with. He says in things like these. 
when you have things in your life that aren't making you look more like Jesus or drawing you more to the glory of God, these are the desires of the flesh. And that finds us all guilty. That finds us all laying there saying, I am guilty. I may not be guilty of sexual immorality, but I'm guilty of anger. I may not be guilty of drunkenness, but I'm guilty of idolatry. I may not be guilty of this, but I'm guilty of that. I may not be guilty of any of the 15 on this list, but I recognize before God that there are times when I do not walk with the Spirit. And when I do that, when I find myself in that, I am rebelling and sinning. Calvin said it this way. He says, for who is there who does not labor under one or other of these sins? I reply, Paul does not threaten that they shall be excluded from the kingdom of God, all who have sinned, but all who remain impenitent, essentially those who refuse to relent. The saints themselves are heavily burdened, but they return to the way because they do not surrender. They are not included in this catalog. All the threatenings of God's judgment call us to repentance. And listen to how he finishes. For which pardon is always ready. The enemy wants to see you locked into this catalog of sins and to stay there. He wants to heap shame and shame and shame on you. In fact, he leads us to walk away with an errant understanding and application to the last little verse here. Paul writes and says, I warned you and I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The enemy wants to come to you and say, that's right, you have no part in Jesus. You have no part in the church. You have no part of the people of God. And the flesh and the enemy, they are in league with one another, leading you into this path of believing that you are, are, you might have been redeemed, but you are now worthless because of your failure. You might have come to know Jesus, but you certainly never walked with him, and you should withdraw yourself because you carry in you the stigma of sin and the stigma of failure, and that's really what you are. You are a failure and and a reject, and you are an embarrassment to the Lord and to everybody who knows you and knows your story. And that's where the enemy wants to keep you. And that's where he wants to lead you. And there's something in there that is so incredibly tempting to believe and to say, you're right. Because I saw the look of horror on people's faces when I confessed to this. Hey, girls, pay attention. I saw the look of horror on people's faces when they heard me confess. I remember the shame and rejection I felt. And I'm pretty sure God feels the same. I'm pretty sure there's no hope for me. People may not say it, but I think they probably feel the same way towards me. And the enemy's feeding that line to you over and over again saying, yeah, that's right. You are a failure. Yeah, that's right. That's who you are. Yeah, that's right. That's where you should stay. You have no part in the inheritance. You have no part in this. God is done with you. Paul writing to the church in Corinth that was just an absolute mess has something really similar to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you see how it's the same as the ends here? He says, do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And there was a sense at which those who are in the church there in Corinth said, that's right, they've got no part. And then Paul comes back and he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Peter, wanting to drive into the idea that we can never push ourselves beyond redemption, that we can never push ourselves as lost people beyond the power of Christ's blood, and we can never push ourselves as saved people past being restored in relationship with Jesus, said this about our inheritance in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is three things, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Your sin cannot sully, dirty, or diminish the inheritance that Jesus is safekeeping for you. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. So I've got my inheritance up there. And it is waiting for the moment of my arrival. And what is God doing with me in the interim? How is he keeping me? He says, this is who you are. You are the ones who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's desire for you is to walk in sinless perfection. He gives you the spirit for you to walk in his power. And he gives you the spirit that you might freely extend your hand to him and to be led. But in those moments, you find yourself not walking in the Spirit, not being led by his power, but enjoying the catalog of these sins or elsewhere. He meets you with redemption's reminder. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And God calls you back to remembrance of that even while you struggle, you trip, you fall, and you sin. Loved one, come back to his embrace. Come back to his grace, to his mercy, to his forgiveness. Enjoy once again what it is to walk by the power of the Spirit, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints, and to be led in gracious mercy, step by step. As he longs to lead you in paths of righteousness. Listen, maybe you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus. God delights in saving those who wander further. He delights in taking the sexually immoral. He delights in taking those who are so won by their fits of anger. He delights in taking those who hate themselves and hate others and making them truly 
glorious through the power of his gospel. None, no one is beyond God's ability to redeem. I'm gonna pray for us in a moment. I'm gonna ask that Philip and Leslie come down here and so we'll have them down here to pray with you and then I'm gonna get Justin to come down on this side. In just a moment, these three are gonna be down here. If you wanna come pray with one of them, you are welcome to do that. We would love for you to pray with them. Maybe you just need to turn to the person beside you and say, would you pray with me? Would you help me to have anew the sense of the Holy Spirit's leading? Would you help me to have anew the sense of God's love and his care for me? Because what I feel right now is shame. And I I don't want to live like that. And I get a sense that God doesn't want me to live like that either. So let me ask these three to come down. Let me pray for us. And then we'll give our hearts back to the Lord in worship. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would... God, move in our hearts that you would stir in us a desire to follow you, to walk with you. God, that we would yield over shame and that we would receive the glorious mercy of your Holy Spirit leading us, guiding us, in each step and in every way. God, you are good and you do good. So God, would you help us to see that? Would you help us to believe that? To follow you in hearing that? God, would you guide us in these moments of response? That those of us who need to come forward and pray would do so. That those of us who need to turn to the person beside us and pray with them that we would do so. God, and that those that you have called to salvation would submit themselves to you and that they would make that known in this time. God, we submit these things to you and we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.